It is Monday, everybody. Welcome on into MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. Yesterday, we were in Canada. Today, we are in the nation's capital of the United States of America. Our guest today, previewing the Washington Nationals, it is Josh Neighbors of the Locked On Nationals podcast. Josh, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I am well. I, I'm glad to be here. It's a, it's a busy time. You know, you and I, it's funny, you and I were talking before the show, and we're both in the worlds of baseball and college athletics. And those two worlds uh, are colliding right now very much in terms of schedule. Uh, obviously, you know, baseball is starting in those, and it's been started, but it's going on right now for much of college baseball too. So there's so much to keep up with college basketball, college baseball, the MLB. So uh, busy times, but always, always a pleasure to talk some Nats. I want to start off with really a general overarching question. And I think that this is more appropriate for the Nationals than it is for almost any other team in baseball, given that they win the World Series in 2019. From May onward in 2019, they were the best team in baseball. And then last year, Juan Soto has his COVID issues. They never get going. And they're one of the worst teams in the National League. It's a small sample size, but I do have to ask, was last year an aberration? Or is there some long-term concern with this team? Well, there's always some attrition, usually from championship teams, especially ones that were built like the one the Nationals had. Um, and, you know, this, this year's team has built off a lot of guys who are on shorter-term contracts. So there's always some attrition. And then you add in the kind of the weird offseason, uh, and it really affected the Nationals' pitching whether it be, you know, just injuries uh, long-term, I guess, you could kind of say with Strasburg. And then clearly Corbin and Scherzer were not right the entire season. Anibal Sanchez was really up and down. So, you know, it's hard to perform, especially after a team that leaned on its pitching so much. And then you throw in the fact that they had a weird offseason. Pitchers are the, I mean, you know, they are them and I'd say college football coaches are the two creatures of habit in sports that are kind of the creature of habit example, right? I mean, they're so meticulous. They have a every five day, you know, schedule. And then also you add up, you know, how they ramp up for the season. Those guys are creatures of habit and those habits got broken in a meaningful and impactful way. We saw it. It affected health of pitchers across the league. I think the Nats were a big casualty of that. Also their lineup too was a casualty of obviously losing Anthony Rendon. Ryan Zerman did not play. They had injuries, you know, Adam Eaton was not very good last year. And so all of those things kind of came together to create a really difficult, challenging season for the Washington Nationals. Um, and one that I think was healthy because it asked them to ask a lot of questions of themselves and then try to answer said questions this offseason. I fully believe, Josh, that Juan Soto has a chance of being the best player in baseball in the coming years. As somebody like yourself that follows the team as closely as you do, how truly special is he? It's hard to put into words. I, I think it's like I'm trying to reinvent the you know reinvent ways, I guess you could say, to say how good he is. But you know, I think something. Here's a good example because you watch a lot of baseball. This is a very good example. So he does a, in, uh, an interview the other day, all in English, on the ESPN broadcast of the Mets and Nats game. And I think that's an encapsulation of what Juan Soto is, is that he is this, you know, from a speaking standpoint, he is this like glowing, wonderful personality. And he's making strides to have that personality appeal 
to the masses, right? And, and I think by 25, 26, you know, he is going to be speaking English at a very high level and be a marketing star, you know, much like Tatis, right? I think Tatis has the advantage of having a family where, you know, English was spoken some. And so he's able to get that upbringing. But Juan Soto is, is on his way to becoming a marketable star in many markets. That same thing applies to his baseball game. He is uber talented. We saw it in the World Series, how young he was and how well he played. And next year, we were all wondering, well, without Rendon, what's it going to be like for him? Uh, the answer is better than he was before. It was almost like, you know, it, it wasn't like there was much. Uh, the, the only thing that cost him was the fact that there wasn't somebody in the, you know, in the lineup to protect him. Uh, there was nobody to drive him, uh, drive him in. He was a full, uh, the, the sole focus. He was ready to be that sole focus. And to see that jump that he made, um, it's hard not to just think about the possibilities because the natural gifts of the plate, the way that we know he can improve defensively, you just can't, it's hard to quantify what a guy like that who's performed and reached the mountaintop at such a young age, like this, the sky is not the limit. It's, it's whatever is above the sky. I guess the atmosphere you could say. I want to talk next and we're with Josh neighbors of the locked on nationals podcast here on MLB morning coffees, 30 teams in 30 days. I want to talk about the other young outfielder in Victor Robles. What is it going to take for him to make the next step offensively? Because we know how good defensively he can be. For me, the next step for him is being a guy that can be at the top of the lineup, hit 280 to 290 consistently. And that's asking a lot. But I think that with how we've been talked up about him, that should be the expectation as he moves into, what is this going to be, fourth full year, third full year in the bigs? Yeah, so he's, he's going to be moving into full season, you know, technically speaking, full season, uh, number three. Now, he's been around for, since 2017, but he played his first full year in 2019. 2020 is a second full season, you know, 52 games out, out of the 60 that they played. And so for Victor, the key is this, is that, you know, see the ball, see the ball better, be selective, you know, get on base and let them in and the Nats like to run. So that's kind of, that's why they need him to get on base. They, which whether you agree or not with the running strategy, the Nats, that's what they want to do. Um, and yeah, just get him on there. And look, here's the thing. Davey Martinez gave him some opportunities last year, batting him lead off. He's done it a lot in this spring training. And I think Martinez thinks this team is at its best and they can get a, like you talked about, that guy out of Robles who plays good defense, gets on base a lot, and that allows them to hit Turner and uh, Trey Turner and Juan Soto two and three. Now, you know, the, the thought process for a lot of people is, hey, shouldn't your best two guys be getting a lion's share of the at-bats, hitting those two spots where they see the most at-bats over the course of the season? And, yeah, there's some credence to that. But they want to be able to construct a lineup where they can depend on other guys, not just Trey and Juan. And so that's what they need is dependability at the front, or if they bat them, you know, at, at the end of you know, the lineup, it just kind of, you know, they say the ninth hitter is the second leadoff hitter. You know, if they want to hit the pitcher eighth and put Victor at nine and put Trey at one, that's possibility too. So they just want that dependability. That's really what they want from him at the plate. Josh, I didn't see the effect of losing Bryce Harper on the 2019 Nationals, but we definitely saw the effect of losing Anthony Rendon on the 2020 Nationals. Has the full effect of losing Anthony Rendon sort of creeped in over the fan base? And as a follow-up to that, how urgent is it for Carter Keyboom to really make that next step and become the guy that has been heralded 
in his prospect status for years. Yeah. So the, to answer the first part with the, the Rendon thing, it's, it's interesting because his departure is not just measured in the fact that he left. It's measured in the fact of what they replaced him with. So, you know, like they, there were times last year when Estrubal Cabrera was batting behind Juan Soto or, you know, Eric Thames for a short period of time, it just flamed out, did not work, was batting there. Or they put Kurt Suzuki in that spot. Those guys just aren't meant to hit fourth and support a guy like Juan Soto. So that, that, feeling was uh, you know immediate right that feeling of not having a guy you know one of the best all-around hitters uh players in baseball and the fact they didn't have anything ready readily there to replace him was a big issue now carter keboom was supposed to be that option that answer and last year i thought david, Mar- david martinez made a major misstep in saying at the beginning of the season yeah carter keboom is going to get a majority of the work he's going to get that that's his spot and then a lot of Estrubal Cabrera happened. There was a stretch of time where they sent Keboom down. And then they brought him back up and basically eventually realized, hey, now is a good time to get some reps and get a look at him. And they they just – I thought they mismanaged the situation, and then Carter didn't play well either. So it's kind of a confluence of things that, that led to this season now where it's, you know, they're in a spot where they got to give this guy time to develop. But in this division, in this space, the National League East – how much time do you have? You know, you can't, there's no falling in the 19 and 31 hole this year and climbing out of it. Not with how competitive this division is, not with how competitive this league is. And so that's one of the weird spots the Nats are in is trying to have patience with Robles and Keyboom, but also trying to put together a roster full of guys, you know, at kind of various ages where they clearly want to win. And Carter Keyboom, I think, could be a part of winning down the line, but this team feels very much put together to make the playoffs this year and to try to make the playoffs this year. And if they make it, they're super dangerous. I mean, nobody wants to play the Nats if they make it, but in those plans, how much patience do you have for prospects? Right. That's kind of the question. We're here with Josh neighbors of the locked on nationals podcast, previewing the 2021 Washington nationals. I know I prefaced the last question by going through this list, but I'm going to do it again with this question. The Nationals didn't lock up Bryce Harper. He walked away. They had a choice between Steven Strasburg and Anthony Rendon. They chose Strasburg. Rendon walked away. With two years waiting until he hits unrestricted free agency, how important is it in your mind that the Nationals lock up Trey Turner long term? It's, it's number one on the docket right now. It's got to be. This is a guy that, for my money, you know, they hit, might not hit him lead off. But he is a perfectly off hitter. Uh, he brings that combination of of, of speed and uh, you know the guy never really gets cheated uh, at the plate. An excellent guy to set the table for you. And when you ca- take that into account, and also you know normally pretty good defensively. Last season was not a good defensively, but it's it's item number one. And they need to make sure they get on that right now. And I think Mike Rizzo has talked about it. that is item number one for them now. You know, your mind, when you see the Tatis deal, I know they say the same position, you know, your mind might go to, my mind went to Soto first just because of kind of the similarities between them. But in the immediate, Keeboom, oh, excuse me, Keeboom, Trey Turner is the one that deserves that attention. Um, and, I mean, he's his consistency is second to none. His attributes are second to none, uh, at least, you know, for what's available for the Nats. And so it's paramount. I mean, it's it's, you know, it's, Pretty simple, I think, in my mind. This is a guy they've got to lock up uh, just because of, you know, his entire time in the major leagues. I mean, he has been a uh, he's been a plus player, in my opinion. 
He is the only sure thing on that infield. And that goes to my next question. Josh Harrison's got one year left on his contract. He's not going to be the guy that he once was in Pittsburgh. They bring over Josh Bell from Pittsburgh, who they're trying to find lightning in a bottle with after he hit 37 homers two years ago. From my outsider's view, it looks like he's going to platoon with Ryan Zimmerman at first base, but get the majority of the at-bats because he is a switch hitter. What was the purpose in signing somebody like Josh Bell, and do you think that he's a part of the future if he lives up to what he was two years ago? Yeah, so that's a great question because Josh Bell presents – I think when people see Josh Bell, there is a misunderstanding about the fit with the Nationals because – this is how it's going to work. He's going to platoon with Zimmerman, who is an absolute lefty killer at first. Um, it, it, when he plays first and they hit him, he's a lefty killer. So if they're going to put Josh Bell in there in that lineup, his job is to support Juan Soto, to protect Juan Soto along with Kyle Schwarber. And I think because he's now on a team where he is not the focal, or you know, the focal point. I mean, you could argue, you know, there weren't any other, really not a whole lot around him uh, in Pittsburgh. He's now a part of a, of a good lineup, a part of a well-constructed front end. And so I, I think that lightning in a bottle, you know, is a term that, that I think people used for that 2019 season that he had. And I don't think the Nats are after that. I really don't. I, I think the Nats are after, you know, they, they bring in guys and they ask them to be themselves. You see it so many times with guys like Adam Eaton and Howie Kendrick. Uh, and Anibal Sanchez from a pitching standpoint. The Nats are really good at having guys come in, just be themselves. And for Josh Bell, you know, they understand he's a strikeout a good amount, uh, but they're looking for that home run ball. They want him to be there to provide some much needed pop and power, which they did not have previously. So I think, you know, he will be getting, yes, a majority of the work there at first, but, you know, there's a good chance that he, he's going to be put in a lot of really good situations to succeed. And uh, I, I'm curious to, you know, to see what happens. I'm pretty optimistic just, you know, from a standpoint of, yeah, they're going to have him, um, you know, hit righties and they're going to have Zimmerman uh, uh, hit lefties. And, you know, historically speaking, I mean, he's done very well. It's a t- career 200, uh, 271 hitter against uh, right-handed pitching. So I think that platoon is going to be a key for them. And, and I think they're going to put Josh Bell in some positions to succeed. What, was the objective behind the Kyle Schwarber signing. I have family that lives in Chicago. I follow the Chicago teams as closely as I do any team in Major League Baseball. And Kyle Schwarber is somebody that has a high power upside, but he's not very good hitting lefties, and he's average defensively. Now, he can hit you 30-plus homers, but that's not a guy at this point in his career that I see as an everyday outfielder, let alone an everyday player, whether he's a DH a catcher because he came up as a catcher, but the Cubs knew that he was never going to be a big league catcher. What is your expectation for Kyle Schwarber on this team and what can he provide on a consistent basis? So I, I, th- I thought it was an overpay. Now here's the thing. It was a one-year deal. And that's the thing is that if you have the money, it's a one-year deal. It's the risk is very minimal. Um, you know, they're going to ask either ask him to, to hit, you know, and they're trying to work on his mechanics. I will say that's the one thing that, you know, is talked about is that Kevin Long for them as the hitting coach um, is very good at kind of working on small things to get guys in the right headspace, to get guys, you know, mechanically um, in a position. You can already see it now. He's tucking his head more. He's trying to make sure he keeps his head in a lot of the time. And so I, I think those are the adjustments that he needs to make 
But what they're asking from him, kind of similar to Josh Bell. I mean, I think they understand that here, the 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 upside might not be as high as Bell's, just from a all around standpoint. But I think the idea that they just it's somebody who can provide power, guaranteed provide some kind of power, even if he's having uh, a poor season, because just they need that so badly. They they did not have any of that individual power guys who can just go and get you, you know, get you a run uh, one swing of the bat. They didn't have that last year. Um, they were asking that from different guys. And so this brings somebody that they're not going to ask too much of. Um, he's just going to be asked to, you know, be once again in the front of a really good lineup and help support along the way. Yeah. But they love to get, you know, awesome production from him, but no, I think they understand that what he is and they know they can maximize him. The outfield. Yeah. The, the defense is a huge issue. I, I I'm not going to lie to you. Um, so they just want that to be somewhat serviceable, even below average, I guess you could say. But I think the idea here is this is a classic Mike Rizzo type move, uh, low risk because it's a short-term deal, high reward. If it works out for him. We're here with Josh neighbors of the locked on nationals podcast, previewing the 2021 Washington nationals on MLB morning coffees, 30 teams in 30 days. Ryan Zimmerman is the original national. And my question to you is. Is this going to be his final go around? And what does he provide in regards to leadership that has meant so much to not the, just this generation of Nationals teams, but prior generations of Nationals teams? Uh, he is Mr. National. He is this franchise. And um, I don't think anybody was upset last year when he you know, decided to take the season off for a variety of reasons, especially his family's health. I think there is a part of him that is re-energized that, you know, saw his team, saw him struggle and is excited to get back and help excited to contribute in any way possible. And I think he talked about having a couple more years left. You know, maybe this is not the last go around for him. And I think he's invested in helping to find, helping finding this way, you know, this team ways to win, especially if they make a nice run this year and get close and they decide they want to kind of retool in the off season and approach it that way. I think he's had a chance to, to keep, uh, you know, keep going with the Nationals. And, um, you know, it's out of their ask, once again, not asking too much of players, you know, is a big key for them. A lot of comfort level, obviously, for him in this position with Washington. And as a leader, having those guys back in the clubhouse, having, you know, Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin back together, having Zimmerman and potentially actually Carter Parr there, uh, you know, having Soto and Trey who are young guys, but still leaders in this team, you know, having all those guys in there is very important. Um, Ryan Zerman, I think it'd be really important for a guy like Carter Keeboom, right? That used to be Zerman's position over there at third. So having him around, I think could greatly benefit Carter Keeboom. That's, that's kind of the position that he's in a mentorship role and somebody that is, you know, been with this franchise, helped build it up and knows what it takes to get there and understands kind of where the franchise is right now. Kurt Suzuki is gone. Jan Gomes has not caught over a hundred games in quite a while. What is it going to take for him this year to be able to catch 115, 120 games and know that you are going to have a guy that is relied upon? Because Alex Avila is not a backup catcher that I really want as your primary backup catcher. I mean, he is what he is at this point in his career. He's old and he's not very good offensively, but he provides leadership. So what kind of pressure is there on Jan Gomes to stay healthy and to be able to be the consistent backstop for this team. Well, one thing for Jan is he doesn't have to worry about anybody behind him. Like there's, I mean, there is a, such a small chance that he's, that Jan's bad. And, and Alex Avila is able to, to recapture some of what he used to be. 
it's Jan's job. And if Jan hits anything like he did last year, I know it was a short, you know, smaller sample size, but still, if he hits like that, I mean, it's, it's his job. Uh, there's There's got to be a high comfort level for him knowing that this is, you know, he's, he's got this now and he's 32. So, you know, a veteran guy and he's peaking at the right time. You know, I think having a guy peak at this point of his career is something very cool to see. He just seems very confident right now. Very confident, you know, with, with his relationship, obviously, Ian and Corbin have a great rapport and extending that beyond, um, you know, that, but honestly, extending that beyond those, you know, uh, Corbin is the big key, right? You know, being the everyday guy for everybody else. That's what I want to see is just, you know, is, is it the same uh, as that awesome relationship he has with Patrick Corbin? Hitting wise, you know, they're going to ask him to be a, a, a solid part of that back of the lineup and, and and just be what he was last year. And if you continue that, he'll be in great shape. You know, Jan Gomes is actually a spot that they, they floated some ideas at catcher. And no, I was not pleased with the Alex Avila signing. I, I thought that was insufficient. Um, and look, that's a tough market, right? Catchers, we know how valuable they are, but they didn't make it plays. They, they weren't really involved. We heard about Yadier Molina, some, some chatter on the, on that end. Uh, but they were not aggressive enough for my taste in going and getting a guy that they could really depend on behind the dish as a secondary catcher. Let's move to the rotation. Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg at their best are one of the best one-two punches in baseball. But my concern from an outsider's view is in regards to their three, four, and five starters. Patrick Corbin was great in his first year in Washington in 2019. He had a rough 2020, but again, everybody had a rough 2020, not just in Washington, but really all around. And John Lester is a guy that we saw a significant drop-off last season. And while Lester is consistent, and is somebody that is going to get you at least 25 starts, in my view, he just doesn't have the stuff anymore. So while the front end of the rotation is solid, my two-part question for you here, Josh, is number one, can Patrick Corbin return to what he was in 2019? And number two, can they rely upon John Lester to be a competent number four starter? Yeah, so the, for, for Corbin, he said he wasn't feeling great last year, and that was a lot of pitchers pitching through pain last season. I think that's why you saw some, some poor numbers. For him, he's got to stop, he's gotta stop leaving, leaving things over the plate. He left a lot of pitches over the plate last year. And, look, he still did generate a good amount of swing and misses, but there were times where he was just leaving uh, you know, the slider over, over the plate and fastball as well, leaving it over the plate. And, you know, the hit numbers were tremendous. I mean, guys had a lot of success hitting off Patrick Corbin last year, and it was something that was – relatively uncommon uh you know it felt like for him and for, I, I think having this full offseason he's talked about it has really helped reinvigorate him when it comes to the back end you're totally right john lester you know it's it's really weird i've been saying this a bunch but the more people i talk to there is not as much john lester worry as there is as i have a lot of people are like well he's a solid veteran you put in the four spot his age and numbers are going the wrong way. His age goes up, his numbers are going, well, you know, I guess you could say his numbers are going up, ZRA is going up, but from a positive standpoint, uh, trending downwards, I guess you could say. And for that, that's, that's they had some options out there that could have gotten for the, the number four starter. They really did. And for them to go out and for them to go sign John Lester to a one-year deal, this is not a young rotation that needs veteran influence, you know, maybe like a Braves, right? A Braves having a John Lester around to talk to the young guys and have them pick their brains. Sure. All pitchers pick brains, but they don't, they didn't need that. And they had Anibal Sanchez last year, who was an older guy who was inconsistent. 
Um, you know, they, you just want consistency out of that fourth spot and not consist bad, you know, consistently bad. That's not what they need. So, you know, if Lester can keep the ERA, I guess, around four this year, sub four, um, you know, they can, ex- they know what to expect from him each game, I guess you could say that's what they want. And then the fifth spot, I mean, who the hell knows what they're going to do there, right? These, they have absolutely uh, no clue. It's, you know, Austin votes around, but I don't think it's been him. Eric Fetty, they really want to be that guy. I feel like Joe Ross is now coming back and, um, you know, make a couple other signings too of guys they are going to give a shot to get that fifth starting spot. Eric Fetty necessarily hasn't been the sharpest so far in spring training. So, yeah, I mean, their front three is awesome. Love it. But I'm with you. The back end is where a lot of our concern, a lot of your concern goes. If you're a Nats fan, it's got to, because it's just not, I mean, it was horrible last year and they didn't really bolster it very much this season. Follow-up question to that. I had a chance to watch Eric Fetty pitch a lot in college. I thought when I first saw him that he would be a major league starter for 10 years back when he was pitching at UNLV. Why has Fetty not been able to put it together? And I know that health has been a concern for him and that he's a former TJ guy, but why has Eric Fetty just not been able, because he's been given opportunities, right? Well, Fetty, as I look back at his stat line here, he has earned at least eight starts in each of the past three years and eight starts last year in a 60 game season. That's the equivalent of making 12 starts in 2019 and 11 starts in 2018. Why do you think he's not been able to put it together? It's a great question. Um, you know, the Nationals have had a really big failure outside of Steven Strasburg of developing pitching talent. That is one thing that has is, that is plagued them for a long time. And I think it's about to change. Um, confidence might be a big thing for him. At times last season, he felt a bit more confident than he does, you know, than, than he has in the past when he struggled. I know his numbers weren't great, but he felt a bit more confident. You know, I, I just – I think on a team that's trying to win, there's a lot of pressure there. And they've got now got some guys coming behind him and Cade Cavalli and Jackson Rutledge who are poised to make their way into that major league rotation here the next three or four years. So, or even, I mean, even shorter term than that, actually. So I think Eric Fetty, there's a lot of things working against him, just kind of the expectations from the top, you know, with having those, that all, all those awesome aces and the kind of the pressure from behind and the pressure to be one of those great developed pitchers, you know, as highly as he was picked. So I, I think in that you plus the injuries, kind of answers your question there. So we actually, Josh, have a little bit of breaking news as we're going into the bullpen discussion. Right. Jeremy Jeffress was released, and Jeffress tweeted at his agent, just ruined my life. I've been nothing but a great friend and client to him for over 10 years. Thanks, buddy. So before I get into a general bullpen discussion, Jeremy Jeffress is a guy that when he's on has great stuff. I haven't had a chance to watch him at all this spring. He's bounced around a lot since his second stint in Milwaukee. What happened here? No idea. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, you know, it's, it's, it's hilarious because I was just working this morning uh, for SiriusXM doing college stuff, and I see the news, no idea what's going on. And then you know, I'm coming on here with you, and then I, I see the tweet, obviously, before I got on uh, and recorded this. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of contention there. Um, 
you know, he's only with the team for about two weeks. And I actually thought it was a pretty decent signing. I thought it was something that added more depth to their, their bullpen. They, I mean, I, I think they kind of wanted another lefty, but obviously finding premier left, you know, left-handed pitching uh, they got Brad hand and he's the only lefty they have. So, you know, kind of looking for that, but look, his numbers were good. He's working on some new pitches and, and varying things up. And like you said, when he's on, he's really good. But this is a weird situation. You know, I think we have to wait, wait for more uh, information to come out. And, you know, Mike Rizzo said um, that he was released for personal reasons. And uh, I think this is something that we're going to have to see more of. Um, and that's the statement from Mike Rizzo comes from uh, Jessica Camaretto on Twitter. So, yeah, I mean, we're going to have to see what happened with that. But I thought that was somebody that had a chance to, ma- to make an impact in their bullpen. And now he's not. We're here with Josh Neighbors of the Locked On Nationals podcast previewing the 2021 Washington Nationals. Do the Nats feel like they've solidified, though, the back end of their bullpen after the Brad Hand signing? Because at this point now, they have three guys that could all be closers in Hand, Will Harris, and Daniel Hudson. So what's interesting with the bullpen conversation is that you know, we think of closer as a sexy position, right? Because it's the back end, it's the saves, it's the numbers. I think when you got Brad Hand and you signed him and you have as much depth as you do, this should be a use-as-needed situation because you paid him closer money, he's happy for getting that much, and now it's time to figure out the best way to have him help a team win. I don't think it's always putting him back there every single day as the, as the, as the closer. Use him as much as you can. Move him around, seventh inning, eighth inning, you know, wherever he is needed, and – that allows you to have some flexibility and mix righties and lefties as, as, opposed, as opposed to going straight, you know, right-handers all the way up until the very end with Brad Hand as a lefty in the end. So I like the fact that it gives them some flexibility. You got to love the fact that Daniel Hudson's back. Tanner Rainey was awesome last year. Kyle Finnegan gave them a lot. And so you kind of bring all of those things together and they've got a really uh, potentially nice back of the bullpen. Now performance is key. Uh, we know Hudson had some struggles and Will Harris was not good last year and also got injured. They got to put it together, but they've got the horses to do so. One final bullpen question for you here, Josh. And I love his, I love this guy because I'm a Bay area native. Why did they let Sean Doolittle walk? Because I feel like even as ineffective as he was last year, if they had given him a team friendly deal, he probably would have come back instead of going to Cincinnati. Yeah. I think there's some questions about velocity, maybe in performance and injury, uh, you know, things were not trending the right way for Sean. And look, I think it was time for the team to move on. This is the simplest way to put it. I think it was just kind of, you know, the, the Nats moved on from a lot of guys from that world series team. And I think it was the right time for them to move on. Um, and to be honest, I think, you know, it's, I mean, he was beloved and a big part of that team, but they moved on from a lot of those guys who were beloved and part of that team. And I think it was just time. I actually was just thinking about this. Two of the trades that the Nationals made, the trades for Adam Eaton and for Sean Doolittle, have now netted out two of the best young starting pitchers in baseball that they once had in Jesus Lazardo and Lucas Giolito. Is there any regret in hindsight to having dealt away those guys? None. There is absolutely none. If you Greg, go and look at their I mean, if you go look at their MLB, their top prospects right now. It is all pitching. This is why you do it. Uh, this is why you stock the farm with young arms. And this is why I said they used to be bad at developing, or at least, you know, developing all the way up to the major leagues for them, right? These are two guys, Giolito and Lazardo, who, you know, go out obviously other places and do very, very well. And they weren't finished products when they were with the Nats. 
But this is why you stock with all those guys. And look, the, the Nats gave away two to get Josh Bell. But they they didn't give away Cade Cavalli, didn't give away Cole Henry, and they didn't give away Jackson Rutledge. Those are three guys that are going to make their way to the top. So those kinds of trades are hallmarks of Mike Rizzo's teams. I don't think there's any regret with those at all. I mean, yeah, you see him perform. There's a lot of that. But those two acquisitions, you know, if you're if you're lamenting those, your mindset's in the wrong place because it's a valid question, but you want a championship for a team that got so close, so close Think about the number of playoff runs the Nats had, where they just came up, you know, empty and not, they didn't make it all the way, but they kept having great teams and then falling flat in the first or second round of the playoffs. So to finally make two trades that were super impactful and you win the world series, it's a win, no matter what else happens, you know, sure. If a guy comes Clayton Kershaw, yeah, maybe you're lamenting a little bit, but still you want a championship. What, you know, it, you can't be upset that much. Final question here for Josh Neighbors of the Locked On Nationals podcast. As I look at the NL East this year, and normally I ask the end of my preview episodes, the guest, what's the ceiling, what's the floor? I'm going to tweak it a little bit with you because I feel like the Braves are unquestionably the best team in the National League East. However, second place is wide open. I think that the Mets have added a lot and they have a chance. I think if the Nationals return to what they've been over the past couple of years – they have a chance. Philadelphia has certainly spent the money. And I don't know what to make of Miami after last year because that could have been lightning in a bottle or that could have been a young team that's actually starting to get good. Where do you think the Nationals are going to finish this season if all goes right? If it all goes right, they're a wild card team. It's, it's interesting. I actually want to touch on something that you said about the Braves being the undisputed best team. I'm, I'm with you. And it's hilarious to see all these projections. You know, the numbers don't account for things like the Braves have won three straight division championships. The numbers don't account for things like it's a roster that has been there before that just got better, right? Those, it, it doesn't seem to account for those things. It accounts for pure talent, but it doesn't account for all of these guys who are, you know, new situations, especially in New York, have to kind of come together, need to coalesce, got to get Syndergaard back and all of these things. And also got to figure out the lineup. So to me, it's an interesting starting point. It, uh, the Braves to me should be favored. Uh, you know, go take a ticket to the window and, and put a, take a flyer on the Braves to win the National League East because I, don't, I, I think they're being disrespected right now. Um, the Mets, yeah, they got, they got to put it all together. And I, I think they can at some point. I think it's definitely a playoff team. The problem is this, is that just play us out, three division winners, the Padres, the Cardinals, and the, let's you know, say the Braves. That means that the Padres, the, the Nationals, the Mets, the Phillies, the, the Marlins, we throw them in there, the Brewers, the Cubs, are all fighting for two How about more the Dodgers? Yeah, oh, Dodgers. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm assuming they win the division, right? Assuming they win the division. Yeah. But who's fighting for those two those two playoff spots, wildcard spots? Padres, Mets, Nats, Phillies, Marlins, Brewers, Cubs. I mean, somebody somebody good's getting left out, right? So somebody, so one of these good teams is is going to get left out of the field, and it's going to be a challenge to make it there. But the Nats have a team that I think is built you know, they're one or two injuries away from, I don't think not being that built that way, but right now they're built. If things go correctly to hang in there, hang in there, get a wild card spot. And then all bets are off once they're there. So I think wild card spots, the, I mean, this team can win a world series this season. I, I believe that, but because the class of the national league is so, so good and so deep, you know, at the end of the regular season, a wild card spot is the ceiling for this team. I, there's no, I, I do not think they can win the division, but they can win the World Series, which is kind of a weird thing to say. 
I don't think that there's a wild card coming out of the NL Central. That's just my outside view. And I think that it's almost assumed that two playoff teams are coming from the NL West because the Padres and the Dodgers collectively are too good to underperform to the point where they're left out. So then it's one spot in the National League East that will be divided amongst those four teams. And really, I feel like it's going to be three teams. No disrespect to Miami. I think that last year was an aberration for them. So it's going to be really intriguing to see how this all forms together. But again, we don't know until the very end, because remember, in 2019, the Nationals were near the bottom in the National League East. Yeah, the they can't do that again, though. They can't do it again. There's no way they can climb out of that. And, and here's the thing. I'd even throw the Phillies out with the Marlins. Did the Phillies, to me, they, they want to compete, but that, t- that team has a lot of holes. They have not spent money the right way. And, I mean, they, they were, you know, there were a lot of talks. They wanted to shop Zach Wheeler this offseason. This team, I think, has not spent money correctly, and so I, I don't know if they're in a position to really compete in the long term. I, I would say it really is the Nats and the, and the, and the Mets competing for that one spot and and if the Mets end up winning the Braves and the Nats competing for that one wild card spot um and I'm with you I think also the competition out west isn't very good so they benefit from that as well but I think actually when you talk about this the rotation depth for the Nationals is a lot better than it is in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. I mean it's basically Nola Wheeler and a bunch of other guys in New York there is rotation depth past DeGrom, but Taiwan Walker is somebody that has not been consistent. And Syndergaard, that's a flyer at this point, whether or not he comes back. Who knows what Marcus Stroman's going to look like. I still would rather take the top three of Strasburg, Scherzer, and Corbin over the top three of anybody else in the National League East, save for, say, the Atlanta Braves, who their rotation is young, but it's their lineup that puts them over the top in comparison to everybody else. It's funny because it's it's a it's a philosophical thing, right? Like, I would take the depth of the Braves and the, and the Mets over the Nats rotation just because after watching last season, like ha- having to go through the experience of watching Austin Voth go out every fifth day and pitch, it was essentially an automatic loss. Like it was essentially, I mean, they just could not win. And and so, you know, they haven't, and, and in the beginning of the season, Sanchez was the same way too. And to me, they haven't done a good job of securing that. And so, you know, presuming that all three guys are great, you know, even if we give them that, right. Even if all three guys, the front end are great. There's, I mean, there's no guarantees the back part. And so I'd rather have a rotation where it's DeGrom and Stroman and Carrasco and, you know, Syndergaard throw him in there. And then David Peterson's available, obviously. And also you throw in Taiwan Walker because then you're just, you know, like I said, asking those guys to be themselves, right? None of those guys are, you now have to be an ace because they're just being asked, you know, they have, the Mets have the races. You know, the, the pressure is on, I would say the most pressure is on Stroman and, and Syndergaard when he comes back and then DeGrom. The other guys just just be yourselves is, is really the key there, and I think it's a much less pressure situation. And, and then the Braves have done a brilliant job of constructing that that rotation. Um, you know, I was talking to the Lockdown Braves host Dylan Short the other day. Thinks that Max Fried can be better than Mike Soroka, and whether you agree or not, two splendid options to have. You, you add in a guy like Ian Anderson, who's just got a one. I mean, a changeup that, that allows him to work off so many different other. Pieces. He's a future Cy Young Award winner. Yeah, from he, what I've seen from Ian Anderson, he's a future Cy Young Award winner. And Max Free could be too. Kyle Hendricks vibes from from Ian Anderson. That's that's really what I get. I think you're spot on. Oh, and also they added Charlie Morton. 
And that's a great signing because guess what? They got a bunch of 20-somethings who can learn from, from a guy who's pitched at incredibly high levels and Charlie Morton. Also, people don't like Drew Smiley. He's the fifth starter there right now. Like there's that's a that's a great that's fine signing. Having Drew Smiley as number five, he had a really nice season last year. Totally fine. So I'm a depth over top end strength over the course of 162. Now, when the Nats could use, you know, the Nats were, were throwing Corbin out in every other situation, every kind of situation in the playoffs, right? In 2019, then you want the front end talent. Then you want to be able to throw out, you know, uh, Scherzer and Strasburg and two games of a seven game series that, that changes the equation, right? But over 162, when you're tossing out there an Eric Fetty, tossing out there, you know, an Austin Voth or, or a Joe Ross, a John Lester, and I keep forgetting how to pronounce the last guy's name they signed recently. And uh, Davey said he didn't get a chance to start, but you throw these guys out there, you know, every fifth day, it's not, it's not as solid as you would like to be. And look, I know you can't always have five great guys, but this is what the National League is. Look at, go look at San Diego, go look at LA, go look at New York and go look at Atlanta. You know, having five great guys and five good guys in rotation, so difficult, tough ask, but four other teams have done it. So, you know, it's, it's hard to, to, to argue against that. I mean, it's, it's kind of the demands, you know, it's kind of, you have to meet that demand if you want to compete, I think at the top, top level all season long. Josh neighbors. Thank you so much for your time. Before we let you go, let everybody know, number one, where they can find you, and number two, where they can find your work. Yes, it's a lot of fun, Greg. You guys can find me on Twitter at JoshNeighbors underscore. You can find the show at LO underscore Nationals. I've got two podcasts. I have a Locked On Nationals podcast, uh, wherever you guys get your podcast. And then I have the Locked On Big 12 podcast I also do. So I cover Big 12 uh, men's basketball and football for, and then some baseball and you know women's basketball too, uh, for Locked On as well. So you can find that at LO, big, uh, LO underscore Big 12 on Twitter. So those that's where you can find me. Greg, I really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Josh Neighbors for pu- previewing the Washington Nationals 2021 season. We'll be back tomorrow. I don't know who we're previewing yet tomorrow because <laughs> I haven't lined that guest up yet, but whoever it is, we'll talk to them tomorrow and we'll see you on the other side.